Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. They now have CPU-optimized droplets with dedicated hyper-threads from best-in-class Intel CPUs for all your machine learning and batch processing needs. You can easily spin up their one-click machine learning and AI application image. This gives you immediate access to Python 3, R, Jupyter Notebook, TensorFlow, Scikit, and PyTorch. Use our special link to get a $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free at the do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. Hey, Chris, how's it going this week? Doing great. I am super excited about uh, the next few weeks. Got some cool things coming up, which, which we'll talk about. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm here joined by my co-host, uh, my co-host, Chris, and uh, we're going to bring you some news and updates from the AI world uh, today, and then also some learning resources to help you level up your, your AI skills in a, in a practical sort of way. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot coming up, Chris. I know um, I'm traveling over the next three or four weeks uh, quite a few times, and we're I know you've got some travel too, so there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up. There is, and there's so much happening in the news right now. I am going to just leap on into the first one, if you don't mind. Sounds good. Okay, so I was uh, I came across something that I thought was really defined what, what I've been noticing in the uh, in the industry, and that is it, it was an article from VentureBeat called "How AI is Decommoditizing the Chip Industry," uh, and it was a cool read because um, it really was pointing out uh, something. It, it seems like you know for years, as you had you know with before the the era of AI and and chips and and the commoditization of different things coming out in computing in general. And now AI has kind of reversed that trend to some degree and that um, processing devices, CPUs and the like, GPUs, et cetera, are really becoming more and more specialized. And that is creating all sorts of entrepreneurial opportunities uh, for different companies. And so we're seeing lots of chip startups uh, instead of just software startups. Um, and some of these companies are like uh, Nirvana, whom some people may know from, from Intel at this point, Graphcore, uh, Cerebrus, uh, Vasith. Uh, there's a whole slew of them, and they're really challenging the the big incumbents, which which um, certainly in the AI era has been Nvidia kind of leading the way. But you know, Intel's come come in hard, come back from the CPU world into into the new AI oriented chip world. Uh, Microsoft has has theirs, AMD, Qualcomm, Google, TPUs, and IBM. All these big players are getting 
huge challenges. So NVIDIA really came in with early dominance with the GPU as they moved from consumer gaming into AI. And, and you know, they had been kind of the poster child for the, for the AI world. Even they at this point are, are having to watch uh, some of the, the, the new risers coming in because of uh, what's called ASICs, which is application-specific integrated circuits. And that is chips that are designed specifically for a particular application. They're completely optimized for that. And, and that's just fascinating when you think about it, because even though NVIDIA has their Volta architecture and Intel has Nirvana, Google's TPUs, at the end of the day, this article is suggesting that the future lies in ASICs rather than commodity hardware. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you think they're right? Well, um, I first of all think that you did an amazing job saying decommoditizing correctly <laughs> on the first try, uh, which I think is is maybe one of the more impressive things uh, that I've heard recently. <laughs> but uh, but uh, in, in all seriousness, um, I don't have as much exposure to you know the app- application specific uh, type circuit world. I, I think it'll be interesting to see that develop. What I do have exposure to is definitely the kind of uh, resurgence of specialized hardware in the context of things like, you know, another company that that Intel owns now, Movidius, has, you know, things like these neural compute sticks. And one of the things that I really like about them is they've kind of found a new niche that they're that they're filling, but it's also, you know, enabling really interesting new types of of applications. So they've got these little, you know, VPU visual processing unit like USB sticks that you can plug into a Raspberry Pi or to a drone or other things and, you know, run your neural networks on this specialized architecture, you know, in a very kind of, you know, low power uh, at the edge sort of scenario. And, you know, I'm at, I'm at GopherCon this week, actually, and just had a conversation before I walked over to record this with someone I said, oh, it's so cool. Now I have, you know, um, I've been doing all this drone stuff and now I can just plug in these sticks into my drone and have them follow around, you know, specific people based on their, you know, facial recognition and, and all that, you know, stuff. So people are really excited about these things. You know, I, you point, you have a great point there and I've, I've used a Mavidius and, and I know so many software developers who are not data scientists. They're not coming from the traditional backgrounds leading into AI. They're software developers that have started in other areas. They might have been web developers and such. And uh, and they've moved into this and having something like a Mavidius stick or, or, or similar devices has really opened up the space for them. So uh, since uh, I was halfway thinking about suggesting you and I go create a startup where we, uh, we, we create an, an AI chip for uh, that's designed around AI for good. I say tongue in cheek. Yeah, that. Yeah, I, I would be. I would be happy to do that. There you go. <laughs> you you, prov- you you provide the funding. A couple things that I found this week actually had to do with more on the research side, um, which was kind of. Uh, I, I don't know, kind of different for me because I'm usually more on the more on the non-research side. But I, I really found these interesting. The first is this new uh, paper that came out on the archive from some some people at Grenoble University in France. And there's also a PyTorch implementation of this network. And um, what it is is it's a kind of new type of sequence to sequence prediction. So if you're if you're not familiar, that's where you know a very common type of neural network that's used in things like machine translation of text and you know taking sequences 
of something to other other sequences. And normally what happens in those is there's kind of an encoder and a decoder stage of those networks. And this paper showed that they could kind of combine those two things into a single two-dimensional convolutional layer, which I, I think is, is really, um, you know, it, it seems after you see it, it's like, oh, that's that's a really great idea, but you know, it took someone to, you know, kind of come up with that and a natural, natural step. So it's cool to see even in things that are utilized in production so often there can, can be this sort of innovation and refining happening. You know, it's funny because when you think about sequences, you know, most people automatically turn to RNNs, but we, I know over the last year or so, I've seen so many CNN applications for, for sequential um, applications. Uh, and, and it's, it's interesting to see how versatile different architectures in the, in the larger convolutional neural network space have been uh, going beyond, you know, just the visual thing that we tend to associate with them normally. Yeah, definitely. And and like I say, the, there's an implementation of this already on GitHub in PyTorch, which I love working with PyTorch. And so I, I, I would love to try out some other examples and, and you guys can as well. Gotcha. Well, I am going to uh, turn briefly toward the, the medical world where it intersects with AI. There is a couple of articles that I've run across. Uh, one is uh, called John Hopkins Researchers Use Deep Learning to Combat Pancreatic Cancer. And that one really struck a nerve with me um, because, um, I, uh, incidentally, I'm on my second marriage. But in my first marriage, I lost my mother-in-law to pancreatic cancer. And, I, you know, we watched as, as, she, as, we, as she went downhill very, very rapidly. And um, and in doing that, it made me very aware of how bad pancreatic cancer is in terms of um, only 7% of patients that are diagnosed make it another five years. Uh, it has the lowest survival oh, wow. rate of any form of cancer out there. Um, and so this was this really caught my eye and that they are, they're basically saying that early detection uh, could lead nearly a third of all diagnosis uh, to be made four to 12 months earlier, which could save a lot of lives or extend a lot of lives out there. So in, in our in our ongoing theme of AI for good, uh, I really uh, I really am encouraged by that. They, they use deep learning uh, in combination with a CAT scan to, to look for minute textural changes to the tissue. So that was pretty amazing. And then the other thing I saw, which was on the uh, on the pharma side, was um, uh, a system that uh, they call RELEASE, which stands for Reinforcement Learning for Structural Evolution, which uses these two neural networks, one that's kind of a, a teacher neural network and one which is kind of a student. And they say that they can, the teacher knows 1.7 million active molecules in great detail. And the student's able to learn from that and then actually create new molecules and evaluate those new molecules with properties that researchers specify. And so this is where you're, you're seeing deep learning being applied to pharma to create designer drugs uh, much more rapidly. And, and between the diagnosis of cancer and the life-saving aspects of that and being able to get to, to new life-saving drugs sooner, I'm just, uh, I'm just really impressed with how deep learning is revolutionizing medicine in general. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that uh, especially coming from uh, like a background where I was exposed to like computational chemistry and those sorts of methods. I think people don't, you know, when you say all of those molecules and, and those sorts of things, um, you know, maybe people don't fully realize that, you know, for even a single molecule, a small molecule like oxygen, you know, there's 
if you ignore the the protons and neutrons, you still have a bunch of electrons, uh, six, I believe, if I if I haven't forgotten everything. And each of those are in a three dimensional space, and you know there's a time element, and there's um, potentially external fields, and there's just a lot of variables that happen in in these sort of computational chemistry. Uh, scenarios and if there's anything we know about deep learning, uh, it's it's pretty useful in in high dimensional spaces sometimes. So uh, I think that's that's really interesting to see uh, more of those methods come out. What else have you seen this past week? Well, I saw this super creepy video which I shared with I our saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I shared with our users on or our, not our users our listeners on uh, in our Slack channel. It's this uh, new work uh, from Berkeley. And essentially the video that I saw, and maybe there's multiple out there, I'm not sure, is like a guy dancing. Um, you know, it's like a Bruno Mars song. And what they did is they kind of taped two individuals moving around in some space to kind of train on their movements and then and their body structure and then they generated video of these two individuals dancing in the same way as in as in the uh bruno mars and then a ballet video and it's it's just amazing and i think you mentioned when when you first showed you know some people they didn't even realize that it was generated in you know videos of people they thought they were actually dancing uh synchronized in that way yeah it was actually my six-year-old daughter Athena um, we were look after you posted it in slack I saw it and she heard the music on it and she comes running up to my laptop and we were looking at it and you know I'm marveling because they, they showed in the video which people can see in the show notes they, they showed the video of the of the source dancer in one case it was kind of a you know a funk type dance and then there was a ballet dancer and then the these two people that they were using to, to superimpose the, the motion on and and they didn't always line up and so you'd have these uh, these brief moments, these subtle moments where the body was doing things the body couldn't do. And it was enough for me to, you know, I kind of knew what I was looking at, but my six-year-old daughter never realized that it was generated. Is she, she's grown up in a world, you know, where, where this is normal. You know, AI doesn't even phase her at her age because she's seen it from me. And, and just like mobile technologies and everything else, it's, it's normal. But later on, I said, you realize those people weren't actually moving like that. The computer made them do that. And she goes, no, I had no idea. You know, it's, and I'm just thinking just two or three years down the road, where's this going to go? You'll be unable to distinguish generated motion from, from real life. Yeah, I think, um, you know, not to give away all of our startup ideas, and I guess you can scoop us if you like, but uh, another startup we should create is, you know, the uh, computer generation of uh, music videos where we kind of... Uh, make obsolete all of the music video dancers and just get their training data. And then we can reuse the same dancers in any sort of video and any sort of background and make it seem realistic. That's my my second startup proposition. <laughs> I'm, I'm all over it, but uh, just so long as it doesn't involve, you know, the two of us out there dancing, you know, it, so long as we're not the models used in any of the stuff. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure you could do better than those those dancers in real life. I don't know uh, about that. My, 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 my <laughs> wife would tell you not so much. So the last thing that I wanted to, to share uh, with everybody is that Chris and I are going to be at O'Reilly AI in San Francisco, the O'Reilly AI conference, uh, which is, I believe, going on. At, when this airs, it will be going on this week. So if you are 
at O'Reilly AI in San Francisco. Come find us. We'll be walking around doing some interviews. We'll have stickers. We'll have some nice swag and, and all sorts of stuff. So come and meet us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear about your ideas and discuss whatever topics you'd like. So, so come find us there. I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to attend. And, and I, I second that. We're, we're, we are just there to meet everybody and to have conversations, uh, to do a bit of recording. So um, don't be shy. We're looking forward to meeting lots of people uh, in San Francisco. Definitely. Uh, well, let's go ahead and move on to some learning resources. This is the, the part of these type of shows where we just kind of share a couple things that we've run across that have been useful in terms of learning new things uh, within the AI ecosystem or new frameworks or or new techniques or whatever it is. The first one that I found this week, which I don't think is, uh, you know, totally new, but it was new to me, is uh, the site that kind of creates a data visualization, a, a map of all of these different data science and machine learning books. So it's called, you know, hands-on machine learning. And it's kind of like a little roadmap of all of these different books that have been released on different subjects like deep learning and Python in general and beginner books and expert books. And it kind of guides you to the different sections that, that you might be interested in. So um, if you don't know, you know where to start or what books to look at, that might be a good place to just kind of explore what's out there and maybe avoid an expert book if you're looking to, to begin and, and start out in AI, or maybe you're looking for a book specifically about deep learning or something like that. I think this is great. I had not seen this before. So uh, I'm looking at the link uh, at this point. And after we're done recording, I'm going to go uh, snoop through it and see what I need to go get. Sounds good. What do you got for us this week, Chris? So I have, uh, th there is a, a Udemy course that I decided to put that's pretty good. Um, it is a paid course uh, and, the, and the price Typically, this is one of those things where I've never seen it at full price. It's always at some kind of discount. Currently, it's $10 to, to get it, but it's called Complete Guide to TensorFlow for Deep Learning with Python. And it is uh, quite lengthy, actually, and you can kind of pick and choose, but it has 14 hours of on-demand video. And so uh, if video is your thing in terms of learning, uh, it kind of takes you through everything from the beginning as kind of what is machine learning to an introduction to neural networks, TensorFlow basics, CNNs, RNNs, various uh, other topics uh, that they that are kind of uh, ancillary, autoencoders, reinforcement learning, uh, and even generative adversarial network scans. And so that that was it had such a breadth of topics that it was covering that um, for ten bucks I thought it was a pretty good uh, pretty good investment to get people into and. And so if you like to use Udemy as a platform for learning, then I recommend this one. It has uh, 4.5 stars uh, out of uh, six and a half thousand ratings as I, as I read this on their website right now. So that's what I found. I thought it was a good thing for a beginner to get into. Awesome. And yeah, I should mention too, that if anyone out there is looking for books on specific subjects or looking for specific types of courses, or maybe just a GitHub repo that has some relevant examples, go ahead and, and jump over into our Slack channel. You can join the Practical AI and Changelog Slack team by going to changelog.com slash community. And there's a Practical AI channel in there. And just Send us your question and we'll do our best to point you to whatever resources we know about and maybe some other resources that our other listeners know about. So make sure and um, leverage that. And 
Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll reconvene next week. We're talking with Susan Etlinger about AI ethics, which I'm really excited about. I know you are, Chris, because our listeners have expressed to us a lot that they want to hear about this topic, and I know I want to hear about it as well. And Susan's uh, an expert. We'll also be talking at O'Reilly AI about the same subject. So make sure and and join us again next week. Yep, she is super impressive. I can't wait for that conversation. And uh, as this gets released, uh, I will be seeing you within a couple of days at uh, O'Reilly AI, and we'll meet a whole bunch of our listeners and do some recording as we go. So I'm looking forward to this coming week. All right, see you there. See you there. Talk to you later. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically AI. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend, whatever you gotta do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out, support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. Editing is done by Tim Smith. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.